1: Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.
2: How can the past help us imagine the utopias of the future? I'm Constance Grady, and I write about culture for Vox. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I don't know if you remember this, but in 2016, the U.S. had an election. The results were pretty surprising and they made a lot of people change the way they thought about the world. How did we all get it so wrong? And how could we think about the future now when we had been so wrong about the present? The novelist Lauren Groff, decided that she was going to respond to that election by looking back to the past, all the way back to the 12th century. The Trump administration was all about toxic, aggressive masculinity— The world Groff was going to imagine would be run by women instead. Lauren Groff is one of America's most acclaimed contemporary novelists. Her last book, Fates and Furies, was a National Book Award finalist, and the sky Barack Obama said it was his favorite book of the year. Same thing happened again with her most recent book, another National Book Award nomination and another Obama fave. This book is called Matrix. No relation to the sci-fi franchise. Matrix takes place in a medieval abbey. There, a community of nuns build a self-sustaining world of their own. It's an island in the middle of 12th century England, completely controlled by women. Men from the crown and the church try to take control of the abbey, but the nuns keep grabbing power back. And the systems of power those women put into place are very different from what we saw playing out in the US as Groff was writing her book. Matrix is a beautifully written novel, but it also reads like a thought experiment. It asks, what does power look like when it's not being wielded by men? Does it follow the same patterns we're used to? Or does it move in new directions? And what happens when we use history to imagine utopias for today. Last October, I was lucky enough to host a discussion with Lauren Groff for the Vox Book Club. This conversation is a recording from that event. Lauren, thank you so much for coming.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everyone.
2: So... Lauren, tell me about the origin story for Matrix. What drew you to
0: this world? So, well, you know, all anti-heroines need an origin story apparently now. Truly. So I fell in love with this real-life poet named Marie de France all the way back in college, many, many years ago. I was a dual English literature and French literature major, super nerd, and I took this course in Ancien Francais, which is Old French. And I read a lot of narratives of courtly love, and I read the thing that sort of shook me to my foundations, which was the Lay of Marie de france And those of you who haven't taken medieval classes or French classes probably have not encountered this, but it's magnificent, this book. It's like a, a series of short stories, fantastic very weird in poetic form. They're like talking stags. There are enchanted boats that go across the sea and take lovers across the sea. There's a retelling of Tristan and Isolde. And, you know, it's an amazing collection. And at the time, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how to attack any kind of story or novel about Marie de France. So I sort of put it in the back of my head. I tried to do a couple of translations of the lay. And then in 2019, I had this wonderful fellowship at um, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. It's this great place where, you know, I'm a hermit. I never actually like leave the house but they get people from all academic disciplines and artistic disciplines to come together and sort of share ideas. And so there were astrophysicists, there were people who studied funguses, right? And people who were into video sculptures. Like it it was this amazing meeting of ideas. And I went to a lecture by my friend, Dr. Katie Bugis, who's this incredible medievalist at Notre Dame. And she gave this lecture about medieval nuns and their liturgies, and she was so passionate. And there was something in what she was saying that sort of collided with my long-held idea of Marie de France, and it exploded. It became this idea, even as I was sitting there, that I could talk about the contemporary world, but sort of tell it slant, tell it through this 12th century nun who was invented in my head as I was sitting there.
2: I love that. And so what do you think sparked in the idea of Marie de France with what was happening in the contemporary world for you then? What was the connection that you wanted to explore?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, to be perfectly honest, it was deep into the Trump presidency. And I don't mind if you know that I absolutely hate the man. I, mean, like, like, I don't think you're alone okay. in that feeling <laughs> by any means. I, um, you know, you get in the car and you turn on NPR and you hear that oleaginous voice mm-hmm. and it just like gives mm-hmm. you hives. Um, so, you know, I made mean, jokes with my friends that I wanted to start a a lesbian separatist utopia on some Caribbean islands. It was this big, funny, funny, haha joke. And then suddenly this idea came and I was actually every day building in my book a lesbian separatist utopia. So, yeah. And
2: you do, you write a lot about these utopias and these sort of idyllic, isolated communities that are sort of striving for this better way of life. So, And I think in your fiction, mostly they end up failing. But what makes you keep coming back to that idea of a utopia?
0: I mean, inherently, life is utopian projects, right? It's Mm. destined for failure, no matter what. I mean, we can't get out of it. But we do have to wake up every day and do our best to live as well as we possibly can and to love the people that we love and to try to leave the world a better place than the one that we found. That's very dark. Uh, I think in general, too, I mean, I came from... A very small village in upstate New York, and in fact, it's officially a hamlet. It's called Cooperstown, and it's extraordinarily beautiful. People who know it know of it because of the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is there, but there's also this extraordinary world-class opera called Glimmerglass. It's really beautiful. James Fenimore Cooper's father, William Cooper, was the one who founded it. But in a village of about 2,000 people, you get a sort of utopian vibe, right? Uh, So you're stuck with all of these people your entire life. And you start to see the way that one small action reverberates and, and affects a lot of other people within the community. And it's a very tight-knit community. Tourists come in and then they depart. And it is, in a lot of ways, a utopian or an intentional community in some ways. It's very isolated. There's this huge gym where like a lot of great athletes have come out of because there's literally nothing else to do in town in the winter. It's interesting. And I think I, I really love the tight, enclosed communal space for fiction because Mm. personalities get exacerbated. People's tension gets heightened because there's no outlets. Any sort of enclosed space is already an interesting precept for a short story or a novel. I mean, I would love to write, you know, a novel set on a boat, for instance, and you can't get off, right? I mean, you can get off, but then you get eaten by sharks, <laughs> or you know, any place with no outlet really. It, it makes everything much more dramatic.
2: Totally. Also, why bottle episodes on TV show are always a little like heightened and out there. Yes. And so. What do you get also by going back to the 12th century to play with these ideas and getting the present slant into the past? What are the main things you wanted to pull from that strategy?
0: Well, I I really didn't feel as though I was able to, to talk about the contemporary world in a real way. I was probably pretty depressed throughout most of the Trump presidency, right? And I've also felt as though there was just constant unrelenting wave upon wave of despair and doom. And I think within those waves, I was being rolled a little bit. I wasn't able to see clearly. I wasn't able to pay attention or the kind of close attention that I needed to pay in order to do my job or to do my job ethically or with the moral rigor that I wanted to do it. I do think it it takes a great deal of ability to see in order to write a book that that attends to the actual world as it is. And so I did think as though almost a thousand years looking into the past, one is able to maybe trace out the roots of how we got to where we are or to sort of reflect back and forth as though two mirrors are looking at each other, different warped mirrors the way that the past and the present have resonance or echoes or patterning and the way that uh, a lot of the large issues of the present were present in the past. So, for instance, there's um, a thread in Matrix... About climate change. And I know it Mm. seems very strange to a lot of contemporary readers because our idea of the past is that climate change wasn't really an issue until about 50 years ago or the invention of plastics. Right. And And then convenience overcame our stewardship of the earth. But in truth, wherever there's a human being or a human body in nature trying to protect itself and to create a space for itself, there is climate change, right? So when we use fire, we are changing the climate. We're changing this pile of leaves that could ev- eventually end up being food for the beetles into smoke and heat. So I do think that it's inherent in our relationship with the world that we humans change the world radically from the beginning we have done this and I think possibly this is helpful to remember because I think I do and maybe other people do when faced with the consequences of climate change we freeze right because it's Mm -hmm. so large and the consequences are so enormous and the stakes are so huge that it's like you know we're samson and we've pulled the pillars of the temple down upon us it's not a fast thing we've been doing this since humans have discovered fire so because we have lived within climate change for a long time we're smart creatures and, and we can fight back and change our behaviors i think that you know, knocking us out of a sort of astonishment, turning into stone when it comes to this large issue is possibly helpful.
2: Totally. I love that passage where after they've, I think it's after they've dammed up the lake and there's that description of the the native fauna being displaced in the one very rare species of newt, I think it is, that got wiped out. Um, and it's so interesting to think of that not only as just a mark of almost sin, but also as like, we have always been sinful and we can always, always change. Mm -hmm. So turning directly to the Abbey in this book, since it is led by Marie and she's such a forceful figure, you get a really specific look at what feminine models of power might look like and how they can be different from masculine models. So When you're developing the power structure of the Abbey, how much of that is you inventing and how much of it is you drawing from existing models of feminine power?
0: Oh, I try very hard to draw fairly closely from historical models of power. So Mm. I really, I extrapolated from possibly apocryphal stories. Uh, You know, my job is not that of a historian. But I tried very hard to hew relatively closely to the historical record as much as I possibly could. And again, since I'm not a historian, I I made some mistakes. But in terms of the power structures, a medieval abbess was an extraordinarily powerful and strange creature. So uh, women in general, were not handed a great deal of power. A woman was slightly higher than a horse in terms of the domestic arrangement. <laughs> like a woman w- was a creature to bear heirs. And if they happened to be female heirs, well, if they were good enough, maybe they could be married off and the families could could come together, powerful families. But an, a medieval abbess was a person who was in charge of an enormous number of people. Uh, Not only her nuns, not only the, the religious life of her nuns, but also in terms of business. I mean, she had to regulate the planting of the fields, the rogation days, the making of the beer, the animal husbandry. All of these things were under her purview. The feeding and the clothing of not only her nuns, but also the people to whom she gave alms and hospitality. So this was a large business. And by the time of Cromwell coming in and Henry VIII, you know, breaking up the abbeys, some of these abbeys were the largest landholders in England. And even in the medieval ages, a lot of them had a great deal of power. So a medieval abbess, if she was in one of the royal abbeys, was a baroness of the crown. So she was nobility, even if she was not born into nobility. So it's this This wild, wonderful thing where in a place where there's not many options for female autonomy, suddenly there is this figure, this rare figure who is given power to make decisions and to be a relatively large figure in the environment. Yeah,
2: And one of the things she does that I love is a lot of her power seems like it comes from just being like a really good close reader. Like, she has all of those visions of God as a feminine force who's best expressed as Eve and the Virgin Mary and is a hen laying eggs of creation. Um, and there are all those scenes where her nuns are like, well, that's heresy. And she's like, no, no, no it's totally consistent with what's in the text. You'll see. Uh, so <laughs> what do you think happens when we are approaching these texts and these scriptures and foundational stories from these more radical points of view, um, sort of in the way that Marie is?
0: Well so this is the also the case that Almost all of her visions on which she founds a lot of the decisions that she makes over the course of the book, a lot of them were actually embedded within the mystical visions of actual medieval mystics. And so this feminized vision of God, right, and you you brought up the hen laying the eggs of the world, that is actually mm-hmm. taken from a medieval mystic, right? Um, oh, I love that. All throughout the history of the Catholic Church, there have been extraordinarily strong Marian uprisings, basically. I mean, there are these these upwellings where the Virgin Mary becomes the central figure of Christianity. And that goes very much against the dogmatic church. But it happens over and over again in culture after culture, particularly in the Middle Ages. And then it gets crushed by the church. And then it comes back and crushed by the church. So it proves that there's something in these ideas that is really compelling to humanity not just women but men as well because men were part of this too these marian cults so i, I don't want to say necessarily that if we only you know were to closely read all these scriptures we're, we would get out of them what marie gets out of them but my job and your job is to be good readers right Like to as good as possible i mean Writing is just an emanation of profound reading, I believe. And so you're right. Marie is able to read not only the narrative that has been handed down through the ideas of other people, but she's able to read separately as well. So it's it's almost like a dual reading. It's like one of those singers who can sing in two voices at the same time. She's able to read the tradition, and then she's able to read Something subversive that also sort of exists within the tradition, and that's the kind of reading I like to do, and I try to do as much as possible. But we should all practice reading against the grain, yeah, as much as we can. That's right.
2: And so then the book ends. This is like a mild spoiler, but I think it's fine for people to know. The book ends with the passage where the new abbess burns Marie's papers, and then the narrator says this kind of elegy. Saying You know, this could have been a guide for the new millennium and instead it's just been lost. So what do you imagine the world could look like if we did have a historical roadmap for a different way of living? Or do we already have those roadmaps and we're just ignoring them?
0: Right? I don't know. So that's the really deep question in the book. And I don't know that I would be the right person to actually answer this. Uh, my job is not to answer these questions. It's to pose them, I think. Um, mm. If I were to say on a personal level, not as the author of the book, what I believe, I believe it would be both different and the same, right? I don't actually believe in it. Over the course of the book, I was just trying to explore what the difference would be Between male power and female power. Mm -hmm. And I think I came out on the side of slightly more leaning toward the idea that women are humans, (laughs) which I know, but also we're full of human foibles and folly and sin and ego and ambition and desire and all of the things that make utopian projects fall apart that exists within the hearts of every single human, every single woman or man, which means that when power is added to the mix, then the ideal would probably be contaminated, right? Because power is the great contaminator. So I'm not sure that I would come down on the side of believing that there absolutely would have been a better model. But I like the possibility that there could have been a better model, that we could have possibly seen maybe a more integrated idea of what the church was and not just like a structure structure deeply invested in and replicating male hegemony right and white power Mm -hmm. throughout the world which is for a very long time its purpose so i think the big question at the end is this a tragedy or is this just life right (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it all depends on the reader i think i would hope that a work of literary fiction ends up asking multiple questions some of which are contradictory
2: It's one thing to use a well-known historical figure to tell a story of power and womanhood and toppling hegemony. It's another entirely to choose someone like Marie de France, someone whose life barely left a trace except for the few works of poetry she left behind. After a quick break, I'll ask the author Lauren Groff, how did she build this rich character from such scant evidence? So I wanna I wanna zoom in a little bit on Marie herself as a character. So I know you said that you've been interested in Marie de France. Since college, and we don't have necessarily that much about her life, but we have the poetry. So, mm-hmm. how did you use the poetry to extrapolate out to this really strong, specific character that you have in the Marine Matrix?
0: Yeah, uh, I didn't have a whole lot to go on, right? And I also didn't want to make up as much as I needed to make up, and so I was with a, a great deal of angst <laughs> that I, I did what I ended up doing which is I took the both books that we know for sure that she wrote, although some people say she might not have written the fables, but I, I believe she did, uh, The Lay and the Fables. And I sat down and very intensely went through line by line and wrote down and built a list of the images and the ideas that I thought were extraordinary and strange and maybe even a, evidence of the unique personality who created it. And then I I looked at this list that became almost a prose poem and tried to see the deeper personality in sort of the, the prose poem. And then out of the personality came a personage that I was able to say she was large. She was ambitious. She was a little bit wild. She was a little bit subversive. She was a little bit angry. It was this voice that I started to feel very, very deeply that I took out of her actual words and her images. And then through this, with the exigencies of the character that I knew I had to have. She had to be a noble, for instance, because the only women who were allowed to read at that time or were taught to read were of the nobility or the royalty, because they had to take over the estates when the men were off, you know, killing people in the Crusades or, you know, killing their neighbors in Normandy or whatever. So I knew she had to be educated because she wrote these books. She had to be an abbess because in my perception of what the historians say about Marie de France, it seems most obvious that she would have been an abbess. She had to be from France, transplanted into England just because of her name, obviously. And then she, in my mind, she needed to be illegitimate. And she needed to be illegitimate, but also fairly close to royalty. Because The reason why she needed to be like this was because her position in the court had to be both solid and tenuous at the same time. She had to come from the center but also way to the outside and she had to be seen with a bit of suspicion if she was going to be kicked off into this abbey and not married off as she might have been if she were more appealing personally or if she had thought of herself as more appealing or she hadn't gotten into disputations with the scholars right? <laughs> like in in sword fights with the the soldiers. So she became this person who by dint of the things that I needed her to be and the things that her work suggested to me was just very, very clear. Totally. And one of the things
2: that's really striking is how much the book focuses on Marie's physical strength and also on the the physical strength of the rest of the nuns as they're performing all of these acts of construction, rebuilding their abbey. In a way, it almost feels like their muscular strength kind of takes the place that physical beauty takes in a lot of other books about women, sort of in the emotional center of the book. Was that something that you consciously thought about centering or did it sort of happen naturally as you wrote?
0: Oh, no, it's very conscious. And it comes from Murray herself. And that comes from the fact that she is more an animal than most people are animals. I took this actually from my family. I'm from a family of people who if we don't exercise at least an hour a day, like the world falls apart. We are bad human beings and like it's really ugly. I mean, maybe my sister wouldn't be a bad human being, but I've never met her knots exercising an hour a day. So Marie herself too is a person of such outsized ambitions and lusts and desires and hungers that her physical corporality had to be large also I believed and and her strength her actual bodily strength had to be intense too and I think that Because she's an animal, she wants to get her body in there. The reason why this happened, too, partially, is because the only way I know to write about the past, especially the far distant past, which I have no idea about, and I'm only just making suppositions about, is to go through the body. And the body is incredibly wise, and the body can give you hints about the emotional life in in every scene. So... For instance, if I had to have a scene of penance, say the nuns are kneeling on barley for a while, which is a horrible thing, I actually had to go do it myself and like put barley down on the ground and kneel on it. And, and I only did it for maybe 10 minutes and it was such extreme pain that I couldn't do it for any longer. But, you know, just to be able to understand or get a, just a glimmer of the idea of how to talk about this particular emotional scene, I had to feel something in my body. It is a very sensual book, the way it's
2: written. I I don't know if I've ever read such a vivid description of a hot flash in a novel before. <laughs> like, very, very intense. And one of the other things I love is taking Marie and all of her sort of awkwardness and incredible strength, and she is often remarking on her own ugliness, and then juxtaposing it with Eleanor of Aquitaine, who, of course, historically was very famously beautiful and glamorous. Um, And within the novel, she and Marie are sometimes allies, sometimes enemies. Marie's in love with her. It's a whole thing. (laughs) So... How did you think about putting these two forms of feminine power into conversation with each other?
0: How did I think of that? I thought of it as not in opposition, but sometimes it's almost like the friendship of Marie and Eleanor where it's sometimes very, very close and sometimes oppositional, right? Sometimes contradictory, sometimes not. Eleanor is not just beautiful. She was born extraordinarily powerful, very, very sexy. She had two husbands who were kings, right? She was able to have many babies who ended up becoming both kings and saints, you know, and queens, and she was the progenitor of of greatness. And she also whipped her own sons into trying to take their father down and take over the throne. I mean, she's this powerful, very strange human. But uh, she is canny, canny, canny. And she understands the use of storytelling. And I sort of saw her as a more subtle figure than Marie, who, because of her first interaction with the world coming through her body, is maybe a little less fly right she's a little mm. more crude in the way that she she encounters the world up until the point where she learns from eleanor and from watching eleanor and from her own business how to be a bit more sly a bit more sneaky of it you know taking power and having other people do the dirty work for her so i thought of marie as acting maybe a little bit closer to her emotional center, meaning one of the reasons why when she comes to this horrible abbey and everyone's dying and and starving and the abbess would rather sing than actually collect rents and everything is just a mess, one of the reasons why she takes over is not only for her own survival and her own ability to live in the world, but it's because of these nuns and these child oblates who are dying and she feels they're suffering and she reluctantly steps into the role that she has been given so th- this happens because of the her close emotional connection eleanor is much further away she is she's ferocious and she's sort of like a hawk and she can see the ground and she's very elegant but her elegance is somewhat constructed right and she cares about appearance in a way that marie can't and doesn't, or Marie does, but she, you know, mirrors were not invented until 1835. There are no mirrors in this world. The closest you could get is to a piece of polished metal, which is always inherently warped, or Mm -hmm. a pool of still water, which, you know, from the view of looking down into a pool of still water, you could be Angelina Jolie and you have three chins, right? Like, and, like, your, your face is a little bit droopy and the perspective is really off. So nobody had a very clear conception of their own physical presence in the world mm. unless a picture was painted of them or you could glean enough from other people's reactions to you to form an internal vision of what you look like at the time, which is different, right? That's very yeah. alien to the way that we think about our own self-presentation, particularly you know, staring at our own selves on Zoom all day long now. Uh, And like the horror of that. So I think that some of the difference there was Marie taking into herself other people's reactions to her. And those reactions came out of not just her physical pulchritude, but also the way that she was so rude and so big and, and wanted to fight everyone. And, you know, that dismissiveness, she interpreted also as ugliness when it may not have been.
2: Yeah, it's very redemptive and lovely. The little moment at the end where Marie is talking to her lover, and her lover talks about how she's had a great advantage by being ugly. And Marie's like, wow, I didn't know you thought I was that bad. And she's <laughs> like, well, you have other good qualities. I know. History has not been kind to women who openly challenge the male dominated power structures of the past. And that's made it harder to find heroines. Since so many of them were simply erased from the record. Where and how should we look to find more Maries de France? This is one of the questions put to Lauren Groff by a member of our live audience. We'll find out Lauren's answer to this and to other questions from the audience of this taped Vox Book Club event after one last quick break.
3: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
2: So I think we are just about ready to turn it over to audience Q&A. Um, I want to start with a question from Laura. I don't know if we necessarily have answers for this, but it is a familiar cry of frustration that I think I just want to share. So Laura says... My love for fantasy is as deep as it is for literary fiction, and this book is fulfilling both passions for the saddest of reasons. Such strength and capability being allowed not just to exist but to flourish and blossom in the 12th century rather than being stoned to death or drowned in a pond or something feels like the sweetest fantasy. How would you suggest finding such women in history, since surely they must exist, and since those in charge of the record had so little interest in preserving them? Should I be hitting up archives for journals or letters, reading between the lines and otherwise dull tracks on taxes and magistrates? I don't want to have to embroider them into existence. I'm too tired for that. Where are they?
0: (laughs) I'm going to cry. I know. I know. Exactly. This is exactly right. Mm-hmm. And it's so frustrating and it's so terrible and it's so sad. And I think it's the reason why someone like Sadia Hartman, one of the great geniuses of our age, does the work that she does. And if you're interested, her wayward lives is so magnificent and it's so meaningful and she she looks back at, I believe, African-Americans and the way that these lives have been sort of left out of the historical chronologies. And she, through multiple means, imagines her way back into them. So I don't know how to look for more of these women. I know they existed, right? Because they exist now and humans are magnificent and wild and funny and strange and anarchic in very real measure and when there's a rule there's going to be someone pushing up against it as hard as they possibly can so you know that these figures did exist i think can you write your own <laughs> cuz i would like to read it but i know that they i know that they exist i don't know how to find them in the historical record other than recreating and going back to the past and doing our best to put them there firmly through fiction. Yeah, it's a hard question. Do you have an answer, Constance? Um, I do not. I'm, I'm not
2: as much up on my historiography of women as I would like to be, but I know there are historians working on problems like this and finding women as they have been written out. I think Jill Lepore's book on Benjamin Franklin's sister has mm-hmm. some interesting things on this, and I would maybe start there. She might be a good guide into going further into this question.
0: Stacey Schiff writes a lot of these stories, too. I think she's really—yeah, uh, there are a lot of historians, I think, doing this work, which is good, and it's exciting, right? I think it was one of the directions
2: history of women took in the 70s, and we are richer for it. Mm-hmm. So we have a question from Anonymous, who wants to know about the sex in the book. <laughs> they say, what was your thought process of creating so many women-loving women characters, especially with none characters— Considering the trope of the naughty nun, (laughs) did any of the sisters who you spoke to while researching this book have any thoughts regarding this element?
0: Uh, the magnificent abbess of the Abbey that I went to stay in to sort of see what nuns do, even contemporary nuns. She's she's so diplomatic and wonderful. She was very excited to receive the book, but alas, she does not have time to read it, Right, which I, which I think was a really gentle way of skirting the issue. Um No, none of it—I never talked about sex. That would have been horrific. Like, I would have died, actually, to ask an actual nun about sex. I think there are two reasons why I put it in the book. One, because just the character of Marie, she is out of hand. She's large, and she's corporeal, and she hungers, and she is— sex in her life had to happen. She, like, just as a character, that's just who she is. That's the way she relates to the world through her body. One, and two— and this is perfectly honest. There's a a terrible group of schoolboys in England who do the bad sex awards, and oh, I know them. Yeah, I hate those mfers. But they um, they took some of the sex scenes out of context from *Fates and Furies*, and they nominated that book. But like, the context matters. Context matters, and I was so angry that i actually made a pledge to never write another novel without at least one sex scene because f them and they are solely responsible for taking sex out of books in the last 20 years literary fiction is so prudish and there's so few books that come out with actual sex in it. And even Sex is supposed to be awkward. I mean, sometimes, right? Even sex with very hot people is sometimes extraordinarily awkward. And it's the way that we converse, it's the way that our bodies talk without our actual mouths talking sometimes. Sometimes they do talk. So in some ways, it was sort of like a fuck you to these little assholes. But in another way, it was like purely within the character of Marie. Like she had to be a sexual creature.
2: I love it. It's characterization and also spite.
0: Listen, we can't underestimate the number of books that are written out of spite. I mean, I think it's like the number two emotion in writing. Always. Yeah.
2: Um, We have a question from Janine. Lauren's written a lot of plagues and pandemics into your stories. Arcadia ends with a pandemic, short story with the Spanish flu, and there are several great illnesses in Matrix. Has living through the plague of Trump and the pandemic of COVID changed anything
0: for you? Oh, that's interesting. Well, (laughs) it has somewhat. So... I have long been very, very scared of a global pandemic. I've been scared of it. I've been absolutely terrified of a pandemic. And it suddenly happened in my lifetime as I knew that it was going to. And in some ways, as with this kind of thinking, this eschatological thinking, when it actually happens, it feels almost in some ways, anticlimactic, which sounds terrible. And I don't mean it that way at all. But I did, in my visions of it happening, not in Arcadia, which is a very gentle And I really did think that there were going to be much larger, much scarier consequences. Uh, and those consequences may come, and of course, those are horrible consequences to the families of the people who have died, just horrific and terrible. But I thought that society would break down a little bit more than it actually did. And so, in some ways, I keep waiting for the worst wave to come, right? Like that there's something worse on the horizon. We just haven't gotten there yet. And that's a really doom-ridden way to live. There's this great, great quote by Martha Graham about, um, you can look it up, about this word named doom-eager, or called Mm doom-eagers from the Icelandic. And it's a contradictory feeling about sort of like the beautiful bursting of life in an artist but also the sense of like going headlong into your doom and I think that that was the feeling that I felt for the last 18 years like excited horrible doom <laughs> Totally, and I feel like well, if there's one thing we can take away from
2: Matrix and from this conversation, it's that as societies keep falling, they keep finding ways to rebuild themselves. So mm-hmm. if we crumble along anytime soon, we have the past as a guide that we will put ourselves back together again in some other weirder
0: way. And in geologic time, I have a really good friend who's a geologist. In geologic time, to be perfectly honest, we are not in interesting or importance and the earth will go on without us. And that's, Somewhat, if you're thinking in large time, that's kind of comforting, right? That that there will be life here, that there has been discovered life at every single level when people drill down. And, and that's very beautiful. Life will persist beyond us. Life persists.
2: <laughs> um, I think that is a great place for us to finish up. So Lauren, thank you so much for being here. This was wonderful.
0: Thank you, Constance. I really appreciate it.
2: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. We're off on Monday for Martin Luther King Day, but join us next Thursday for a brand new episode.